We are reading uh, some very familiar passages. The first one is the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make of yourselves, for yourself, an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his donkey or his ox, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And we'll turn to Matthew five seventeen. Now this is the fulfillment of the law. According to Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, or for in, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not go get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath. You have made it to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Jesus says, Don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the law? Most of us know the the summary of the law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, If we had more time, we'd kind of test that theory and see how many we could get, hopefully at least 10 and not 11. But it's actually something more like 613 commands in the law, 613. 
The law had all sorts of things in it, like what happened if you borrowed your neighbour's ox and it died on you, you know, what do you do then? Things like the kind of sacrifices you should offer and how you should offer them, some things that we're comfortable with, some things we'd struggle to understand, and some things that are extremely confronting to us. The law said you couldn't eat bacon or prawns. It said you couldn't shave your beard. And Jesus says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law. But I'm guessing that's a bit of a problem for most of us. I mean, I'm obviously fine, I haven't shaved. But apart from the bearded folk here, the rest of you are in a bit of trouble, aren't you? Now that I think about it, I probably have eaten bacon from time to time. See, Israel was eventually kicked out of their land for not keeping the law that God gave them. They just could not and would not keep it. The problem wasn't so much the law, but the people. It was not so much that the the law was, was too hard, but it was that the hearts of the people was too hard. When you look at the story of God's people in the Old Testament, it looks like the law and them, that it was just a failed story. It didn't work out for them. So what's different now? Why would it work now when Jesus is speaking here? You know, why does Jesus say to them, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is this Jesus placing a burden on us that's unbearable. That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? I mean, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But this feels pretty heavy, doesn't it? haven't come to abolish the law. When we read what Jesus says about the law here in the Sermon on the Mount, is it that we're meant to be driven to repentance? You know, driven away from the law because we realise we just can't keep the law and and driven instead to Jesus for, for grace and mercy? I mean, that sounds good, doesn't it? The problem is that there's no indication in the Sermon on the Mount or in the whole book of Matthew that that's what's going on here. So we've got to have a very careful look at this if we're going to understand what Jesus means in this part of the Bible. And the first thing to see is that while it's inconceivable that Jesus would abolish the law, it's not inconceivable that he has the authority to do it. Why else would he say in verse 17... Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I mean, how massive is that? Jesus has the authority to set aside everything that God has said in the Old Testament and start again. But that's not what he's on about. Jesus is not on about starting something completely different. He's on about something new, but it stands in line with the past. In this statement, we actually get an insight into why Jesus came. He came not to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Part of the purpose of Jesus coming into this world was to bring the law to fulfillment. Okay, so he he came to fulfill the law, but what does that actually mean? I mean, it, it could mean several things, couldn't it? 
Jesus fulfilling the law could mean that he completes the law, you know, as we've already seen, this idea that he brings it to its goal and then he sets it aside, he kind of chucks it away. But we've already seen that that can't be what's happening, that can't work because Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish it, nothing's going to disappear from it. So it's just not an option for us, even though that's a kind of tempting option, isn't it? Okay, another option is this. Is it that Jesus fulfilling the law means that he kept the law perfectly? He personally obeyed the law? Or still another option is Jesus fulfilling the law could mean that he taught the law perfectly. So which of these is it? Well, it's none of these. Because while it's true that Jesus himself does obey the law perfectly and does teach the law perfectly, yet what he means by fulfill the law is so much greater than any of these options. Because what Jesus means by this is that he brings the law to its goal, its purpose. He unleashes the true power and the glory of the law. Have you noticed that we've skipped over something important in verse 17? We've skipped over a key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. Because in verse 17, Jesus doesn't merely bring the law to fulfillment, does he? Did you notice that? Jesus brings the law and the prophets to fulfillment. So if we want to understand what it means that Jesus fulfills the law, then we've got to figure out at the same time how that relates to him fulfilling the prophets. And to figure that out, we need to know the relationship between the law and the prophets. Now this is hard work, I know, um, so stick with me. Uh, it's, it's hard work to figure out what Jesus is saying here, but it's worth it. The relationship between the law and the prophets goes like this. In the Old Testament, the prophets called people back to the law. That was their role. They kept on calling Israel back to the law. But they didn't just call people back to the law, they also looked forward. They looked forward to a time when the law would actually reach its great purpose. Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 31, verse 31 We see him here looking forward. Have a look at it with me. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, that's looking back, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, He's looking forward, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus came to achieve what Jeremiah and the other prophets saw in the future. A new covenant, a new relationship between God and his people where the law reaches its fulfillment where the law, it's not external rules. Instead, it's going to be written on the hearts of God's people so that they desire what the law desires. That's what the idea of it is there. Matthew 26, verse 26, shows that this new covenant that Jeremiah longed for is made possible by Jesus' death. 
because Jesus takes the Passover meal and he says it's fulfilled in him. He takes the bread and he says in verse 26, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, and here it is, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying that what Jeremiah looked forward to and longed for is come in what he's about to do on the cross. The law, it it was always a foreshadowing of a relationship. A relationship um, characterised by righteousness before God. The law always looked forward to that, that relationship of righteousness. And before Jesus came, the relationship would always break down between God and people because it was dependent on the people's righteousness and they always failed. But now Jesus calls us to a new covenant relationship with God, a relationship that Jesus makes possible by his death, bringing forgiveness for our failure. So it's like this. The relationship is not dependent on our righteousness. It's not dependent on our performance. It's dependent on Christ's righteousness, his performance. And yet, while our relationship with God is not dependent on our righteousness, Jesus calls us to a relationship which is expressed by our righteousness. See the difference? It's not dependent on our righteousness. But the relationship is expressed in our righteousness. Now, righteousness, by the way, it doesn't equal rule-keeping. So easily Christians jump to that. It's our natural way of thinking. Uh, It's probably the natural human way of thinking. Righteousness doesn't equal rule-keeping. It equals love of God and love of neighbour. It includes attitude and motivation as well as actions. And as we're going to see in a second... It's extreme. As Christians, we don't abolish the law. We don't teach others to do the same. We're not on about lawlessness. We don't loosen the commands. We surpass them. We fulfill them. We go back to their purpose, love, and and we go beyond them. And here's the key to understanding what Jesus is saying to us here. The law is fulfilled as Jesus enables us to be a people who express our relationship with God. That's how the laws are fulfilled. As Jesus enables us to be a people, enables us to be a people who express our relationship with God. And we do that by loving God and loving others. Okay, so that's the hard bit about what Jesus is saying here, that you've got to get right if you're going to understand anything else in the Sermon on the Mount. And what happens next now in Jesus' sermon is that he gives some examples of the righteousness of sons and daughters of God. So now what follows is him explaining what that looks like. And today we see three things. And this is the first one. God wants sons and daughters who don't harbour hate, but reconcile. We see this in verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Where have they heard it said, you shall not murder? Well, we heard it just before. Scripture. Exodus 20. Jesus quotes Scripture and then he says, but I tell you. I mean, that's a pretty daring thing to say, isn't it? If I stood up here today and said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But I tell you, I hope that you'd have a problem with that. The thing about the way that Jesus teaches the law is that he doesn't appeal to its authority, but to his own. He doesn't say, this prophet said this, or that rabbi says this. No, he says, I say to you. What he says stands on an authority of his own. Jesus alone has the authority to speak like this. And of course, what we know, but they didn't, is here stands not only the one who fulfills the law, we know that he stands the lawgiver himself, the one who all those years ago gave the law. Jesus teaches with the authority of God himself because he is God the Son. But is it that what Jesus is saying here is that he's setting aside what was said before? You know, that was wrong. Ignore that now. Now, it can't be that. We've already seen that that's not what he's doing. You know, he said none of it's going to disappear. So what's he doing here? Well, he's giving an example of the law brought to its purpose in sons and daughters of God. As I've said, the goal of the law is righteousness. It's relating to God rightly as an expression of our relationship with him, which means loving God and loving others. And what Jesus is doing here is giving an example of what that looks like. Keeping the letter of the law is the very minimum requirement of love. Let me give you an example. So if I don't murder you, have I loved you? You know, people sitting here thinking, look how much Stephen loves us. I mean, he's been here for, what, 18 months? And he hasn't murdered a single one of us though numbers are looking a little bit light on today. (laughs) See, not murdering, it's, it's the absolute minimum of love, isn't it? But the law written on the hearts doesn't stop at the letter of the law. It goes beyond that. It fulfills its intention. It surpasses and excels the bare minimum. It knows that what matters is love, murders a horrible endpoint, which we must never get to, But neither are we going to be happy to take the steps along the way. We're not happy to hate, neglect, abuse, not happy to be violent. Jesus says that sons and daughters of God can't even be happy to keep anger in their hearts. How are you going with this? Is there someone here today that you maybe need to reconcile with after church? how we treat each other, we we can't take it lightly because God doesn't. God takes it incredibly seriously. Is there someone that you need to ring up and say sorry to? Or has someone wronged you and you need to talk to them about it? Did you notice that? 
in this passage that Jesus puts the responsibility on us. He says, if you remember that somebody's wronged you, done something against you, not even you being the one who's done something wrong, still go and seek reconciliation. That's righteous. That's relating to God rightly. That's fulfilling the law. That's expressing our relationship with God. And that's what it looks like to be sons and daughters who are like our Father. The second example of righteousness that Jesus gives us is that God wants sons and daughters who aren't sexually unfaithful, but who take drastic action. So look at verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God's not on about mere rules. God cares about motivation and the heart. And so it's, it's not good, good enough for us to have not actually physically crossed the line, had sex, but to have mentally crossed the line, lust. If we're going to have true righteousness before God, then we need to desire the goal of the law, which is love. And love means sexual faithfulness. You see, it doesn't matter how much the rest of the world screams at us that sex before marriage is fine or sex outside of marriage is fine. The Bible's crystal clear. God considers the only loving sex to be within a relationship of permanent commitment between a man and a woman, in other words, marriage. Anything else, any kind of sex outside of marriage in the Bible is called porneia and it's translated sexual immorality. Now, you don't have to be a genius to look around this world and see that way, way too often sex has got nothing to do with love in this world and everything to do with selfishness. I mean, the stories we could tell from our own lives here alone would prove that. But Jesus says the fulfillment of the law, love, is about sexual faithfulness. And so he calls us to radical sexual faithfulness because he says that sexual faithfulness in our heads matters as much as what we actually do in our beds. As sons and daughters of God, we're called not just to external faithfulness. Jesus calls us to sexual faithfulness even within our heads. We're not to lust. Does that sound impossible? Jesus is not saying here that it's a sin to find someone attractive. Finding people attractive is actually natural, it's normal. What Jesus is saying is that looking at someone in order to desire them, that's the problem. Not the first look, but the lingering look. That's sexual unfaithfulness. That's not loving them or God. And Jesus says to sons and daughters of God that we've got to take drastic action. Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. 
He doesn't mean that we should literally cut things off here. It's a figure of speech. You know how I can be so sure? If you have one eye, can you still lust in your heart? You can. I bet you could do it even if you have no eyes. Jesus' point is not literal. His point is do whatever is necessary. Take drastic action to be sexually faithful. Because it's better to take drastic action than to risk hell. Now, also, Jesus is not saying here that, that stuffing up automatically means we're going to hell. He knows we fail. And so, in chapter 6, Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father. And what does he teach us to pray? Forgive us our sins. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, after everything he says here, Jesus says every time we pray, what do we pray? Forgive us our sins. Jesus knows we stuff up. What matters in the end is his performance, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, not our performance. But sons and daughters of God cannot be happy to embrace failure, to wallow in it, to surrender to it. Because to gladly tolerate sin in our lives, to gladly tolerate, that's actually to risk hell. Because in the end, to choose anything over God is to risk hell. We're turning away from our only hope, from our only source of life, if we turn away from our Father. But I reckon sex is a particularly powerful God alternative. Because it feels so good. And because it involves another person. So it has a physical and an emotional pull to it. But those called by Jesus have got a righteousness that flows out of them. We have a light that can't be hidden, Jesus says. And we're not like the Pharisees. We're not happy to look good on the outside and not care about the inside. And so if we're sons and daughters of God, we can't be happy to tolerate sexual unfaithfulness in our lives. This is hard. It's a struggle. But that's actually the point. It's a lifelong struggle. It will never be, cease to be a struggle. Even when you're married, it's still a struggle. Even when you're 80, it's still a struggle. We, we still need to struggle to desire sex only in its right place. Instead of seeing sex as something selfish about ourselves, we need to see sex as a being about faithful relationship. We need to desire faithfulness to our current spouse, or if we're not married, to a future possible spouse. Are you a son or a daughter of God? Then you know what you have to do. Commit to only having sex in marriage and only desiring sex in marriage. Are you going out at the moment with someone and sleeping together? Well, then you need to stop. And if you do it again, you need to break up. No compromises. If we choose anything over Jesus, we start on a path that Jesus says risks us, puts us in danger of turning away from God in the end. And that puts us in danger of hell. The reality is we live in a world that makes sexual faithfulness so hard. And one of the biggest threats to sexual faithfulness in our world today is pornography. 
because it's so readily available and it's secretly available. You can be on your own and only God is there with you. And we Christians might feel uncomfortable talking about it, about pornography, but we've got to hurry up and get over that because the rest of the world is becoming more and more comfortable with it. It's becoming normal. And us not talking about it doesn't make the problem disappear. We've got to have something to say. But more importantly though, we need to talk about this because Jesus talks about it. Right here, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If Jesus is happy to talk about it, then we've got to be happy to talk about it. If we line our hearts up with what God desires, then we'll know that pornography is a lie. We'll know that it's not loving, it's using people. We'll know that those images are burned into our brains and that they'll rob us or our spouse or a future spouse of happiness as we, un- un- as we expect unrealistic things. We'll know that pornography is not love. And so it's not for sons and daughters of God. But the best statistics seem to show that about half of Christian men have looked at pornography in the last month. Half. Now women struggle with this too, but the numbers aren't nearly as high. It's still sad, but it's not as overwhelming. Half of us men in the last month. Can you believe that? Now, I don't know if that's true for us here today. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was. I mean, it could even be higher than that. And it breaks my heart for two reasons. First, because if you're struggling with it, it's hurting you. It's making you feel awful. And it's hurting your relationships. But secondly, it breaks my heart because if this is true, then we're dishonouring Jesus and we're not even talking about it. Which means it's not just a problem for half of the men here. It means it's a problem for every Christian here. At this point, maybe you're a wife, you know, thinking about half of Christian men in the last month. And you're thinking, should I ask my husband if they struggle? Well, I would say to you, you should ask them. And I'd say to the men that you should get in first and talk to them about it. But let me give you two Uh, think two words of caution if you're a wife or a girlfriend who doesn't struggle with this but's thinking about asking your partner first I'd say don't be naive see there's a good chance your husband is struggling with this right now because pretty much all men struggle with this they're either winning the battle or they're losing the battle but pretty much all men are in the battle so as you ask be prepared to hear that The answer may well be yes, they are struggling with this right now. And what do you do next? It's going to hurt. And so it should, they're letting you down. But what you do next matters enormously. And so this is my second word of caution. Don't ask accusingly, ask out of love, concern. And that doesn't mean you don't feel hurt or betrayed or even angry, though Jesus says you need to deal with that. But it does mean that you ask, wanting to help them out of this evil. 
wanting to encourage them to take the drastic action that Jesus says we need to. As your pastor, what should I say to you if you are actually struggling with this right now? Well, I want to say two things. You need to hear two things really clearly. The first is that Jesus stands alongside you with his arm around you. He sees the full darkness, every bit of darkness, but his love for you is unbreakable. Because your relationship with God, it's not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus' performance on your behalf. So your guilt, your self-loathing, your doubting of God's love for you, that's just a lie that the devil wants to spin you to keep you away from God. You are loved by God. You are a child of God because of Jesus. That's the first thing that I want to say that any of us should say to anyone who struggles with this, and you need to hear it. But here's the second. Because you're a child of God, because you're loved by God, you're called to express that relationship with Him. And so now is the time to take drastic action. And the action you must take is drastic. Jesus says, gouge out your eye. How do you do that? Well, you do whatever it takes to stop looking at pornography and to start desiring sex only in its right place. Talk to God. Talk to other people. Talk to me if it helps. I have these kind of conversations reasonably often. Delete any files that you have and then take the real drastic action. Install a, a program on your computer, something like Covenant Eyes or X3 Watch, when I was at Bible College, Moore College, they paid for every student to get covenant eyes on their computer. See, there's no shame in taking drastic action. Even Bible College students need to. And if these measures fail, then keep taking drastic action. Get rid of the laptop. Get rid of the computer. Get rid of the smartphone. Is, is that too drastic? Well, it's not really as drastic as chopping off your hand, is it? And all the while, work on your heart to desire what God desires, sexual faithfulness. Very quickly, the final example for today of the righteousness that Jesus calls us to is God wants sons and daughters who don't speak lies, but speak the truth. Look at verse 36. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Sons and daughters, they've got no need to strengthen their word with an oath because we're on about the truth. Our word has got to mean something. We can't say that we'll, we'll do something and then not follow through. We can't make promises and not keep them. If we say that we'll do something, we've, we've got to do it. If we say we'll be somewhere at a certain time, then be there. Now, especially the younger generation need to hear this. If you're under, I don't know, 30? 30. <laughs> I'll sing you 36 because that's my age, but anyway. <laughs> under 60, did I hear? Okay, there you go. You know, the whole Starbo subject to a better offer or clicking on Facebook, maybe, what is that? It's like, no, yes or no. 
If you're going to be somewhere, commit to it. Do it. If you say you're going to be part of a Bible study, be there week in, week out. If you say that you'll look out for someone, look out for them. If you say that you'll pray for someone, pray for them. Let's be people who say what we mean and and mean what we say, whose words aren't empty but reliable. Now, we've seen an awful lot today in this passage, but we need to walk away with these things. Jesus calls us to be sons and daughters of God. His blood means that forgiveness is possible, this new covenant. His death creates this this relationship with God that's based on his performance, not ours. And being sons and daughters of God by Jesus means living rightly before God. It means struggling against sin, seeking forgiveness from God when it's needed. And it means righteousness, love, love that drives us to seek reconciliation with each other. Love that drives us to sexual faithfulness in our heads and in our beds. Love that drives us to speak truthfully. Let's pray and ask God for this love. Heavenly Father, you see our hearts. And Lord, you see that what comes out of them is all sorts of unclean things. And yet, Father, you don't abandon us, you love us. You sent Jesus to die for us and he has done everything that's needed to make us your children forever. There is nothing in the past that we've done, nothing that we can do right now, nothing that we can ever do that can break this relationship with you that we have by trusting in Jesus. We thank you for that, Father, and we praise you for how amazing that is and for the difference that it makes. Lord, help us to express this relationship we have with you, to live rightly before you by fulfilling the law in loving others. Lord, help us to seek reconciliation when our relationships here break down. Lord, help us to be faithful when it comes to sex especially in this evil of pornography, which has overtaken our society and, Lord, to our shame, overtaken so many of us even here. Lord, help us to break, to take the drastic action and to break it off, knowing that we are still loved by you, still your children. And, Lord, help us to love the truth and to speak truthfully, help our words to be solid and to mean something. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.